Please uh, turn uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2 once again. And we have a lot of material here this morning to work our way through. I might just read some of this to you and uh, stick to the text to try to save time as we go here. Uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And I'll back up a little bit as we review and keep following the apostles' uh, reasoning. Beginning at verse 4, Peter has been describing believers as those who come to Christ as a living stone. Christ is that living stone, and we come to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Peter is using this stone metaphor because it is the language of the prophet Isaiah, and that's where the language comes from, from the prophet Isaiah, which Peter quotes in verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The prophet Isaiah speaks of God's work of building a new Zion. And this new Zion is not built with brick and mortar. It's built upon the Son of God. And the Son of God is the new foundation stone of the new city of God, of the new Zion. And uh, believers are all part of this building project. And wonderful that is. In verses 7 and 8, Peter again, by referring to the prophet Isaiah, shows us that people respond in two very different ways to God's chosen cornerstone, which he laid in the new Zion. They respond in two very different ways. First, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Those who believe on him perceive the value of the cornerstone that the Lord has laid. They believe on Him because they realize how valuable He is. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, that's why you're not. You've not perceived the value of this cornerstone. But when you recognize that, you can't but believe in Him. So that's how one group of people respond. But others don't see the value of the cornerstone and they toss it aside. It is no use to them for the building of the new kingdom, the new race, the new Zion. Picking back up in the middle of verse 7 with Peter's quote from Isaiah, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. So we're beginning this morning considering that last phrase in verse 8, from which we learn that the rejection of Christ by many, not all, but by many Jews, was according to God's plan according to verse 8b. Peter concludes his description of the builder's rejection with the statement, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. They were appointed by God to stumble through unbelief, disobeying the word, the gospel. Peter gives this statement 
as an explanation for their disobedience to the Word. It's important to understand historically what is happening here. Peter makes this statement to answer common Jewish objections that Jesus could not have been the Jews' Messiah since he was rejected by the Jewish people. He was never crowned. They never crowned Jesus as their king like they crowned David and they crowned Solomon. And they were anticipating crowning the Messiah. So this Jesus cannot possibly be the true Messiah because Israel rejected him. That's what's going on here. Paul had to deal with a similar objection from the Jews, didn't he? After expressing his grief over their unbelief, Paul is in tears and he's full of grief over the unbelief of Israel in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But he says, he says, but it is not that the word of God has failed. See, he's dealing with the same type of objections. The Jews protested that if Paul's teaching was correct, then many Jews would be lost. That was their objection. Paul, your teaching cannot be correct because so many in Israel are going to be lost. So your teaching can't be correct, Paul. The objectors reasoned this could not be the case because such would mean that God's promises to Israel had failed. So Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, you see. So that's how Paul introduces chapters 9 through 11, saying, but, but, Romans 9, 6, but in spite of the many Jews that are lost, in spite of that, it is not that the word of God has failed. And then he goes on, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Paul then writes three chapters explaining that neither God's promises to Israel nor his purposes for Israel have failed. Romans 9, 10, and 11. He develops the whole historical line of thought there. Even though many in his own generation were being lost. The Jewish objection to Jesus being the Messiah was ever-present especially if one did not read the Old Testament prophets correctly. And so both Peter and Paul are drawing from the Old Testament prophets that explain God's purpose, that explain this rejection of the Messiah by Israel, and that that was God's plan and purpose. So they didn't read their Old Testaments correctly. And... Peter and Paul had to constantly point that out. And that's what both Peter and Paul are doing. Returning to Peter, he has quoted that God laid the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense in Zion. God put the stone there. He laid it in Zion. Not only as a stone to be built upon, but as a stone to be stumbled over. The stone had two purposes, didn't it? This is not easy stuff. The stone, he laid it there for two purposes. That's, that's what it says. This is God's plan. 
He laid it there as a stone to be built upon, and he laid it there as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Their stumbling and unbelief is part of God's plan. Nothing has gone wrong. He appointed them for such. No doubt people have long struggled with Peter's statement and others like it in their Bibles. Sure we have. Keep in mind that God did not make them unbelievers. However, he did choose to leave them as unbelievers and actually harden them in their unbelief and to call the Gentiles instead. That's what he did. Many Jews were left as unbelievers and thus they were appointed to fall by their rejection of Christ. And in so doing, they carry out exactly what God intended. That's clearly Peter's point here, and that's clearly Paul's point in Romans. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, is in many ways a detailed explanation of 1 Peter 2 7 through 8. It's the same doctrine. Paul gives a much broader explanation of it. But look with me just for a moment for a portion of these chapters, beginning in, in Romans uh, 10, 10, 16. Go to your Bible. We're going we're gonna to rapidly read Romans 10, 16, all the way down through 11, chapter 11, verse 10. And you'll see the connection to 1 Peter chapter 2, 7 through 8 as we read this. Beginning in Romans 10, 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's exactly Peter's language, Right? They stumble, what? Being disobedient to the Word. They, they say exactly the same thing. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed the report? And both Peter and Paul go straight to the Old Testament to defend and explain what they're doing. Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. They have heard. Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Obviously, God did not make them unbelievers when we read a statement like that. I say then, has God cast away his people? You see, that's the objection. Paul, you're saying God's cast away his people. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And we're going to find out who they are in a few verses down from here. He's not cast away his people whom he foreknew. 
Or do you not know what Scripture says to Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's what it means. Those whom he foreknew are those whom he reserved for himself. They too would have been Baal worshipers had he not reserved them for himself. So he's not cast off all of Israel. They would have all been unbelievers had he not reserved. 7,000 men. The cause is God's reserving them. The effect is they did not bow the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. That's the answer. And the rest were hardened. What was that hardness? He quotes again back to the Old Testament. And the rest were hardened, but just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their neck always. There. That's the fuller exposition of 1 Peter 2, 7-8. through 8. Verse 25. We have the same language. We'll just jump down there for a moment. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mercy, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that hardness in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, yes, there's future hope for any Jew who puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to go on and develop that. Uh, So, what can we say? We should believe this. That's what we should say and be humbled by all of it. Peter and John point us to God's sovereign plan and purpose to explain Israel's hardened unbelief. Significantly, John does the same in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 40. That's the least known passage in the Gospel of John. Peter, Paul, and John all give a similar answer when they're explaining Israel's unbelief and you should read John 12, 37 through 40 uh, later today on your own. Now, on these subjects, which we may find difficult 
There's a four-part audio series uh, with a presentation that we did some time ago on Wednesday evenings. And we're not going to go into a topical study of these matters here. We're going through Peter. But if you're struggling with God's sovereignty and the statements we've read and the statement that Peter has said as I have explained it, I just refer to you to those four messages for discussions we had on Wednesday night. And that will help you work your way through these passages of Scripture in some more detail. Now, returning to 1 Peter, let's walk through this from verses 6 to 9, because we want to pull verse 9 into our discussion here today. Verse 9, and I will follow the honor translation. You remember last week, the honor translation at verse 7. So go back, to, go back there to 1 Peter and we're going to read through 6 through 9, and we're going to pull verse 9 into this discussion. Let's read this. Therefore, it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, honor... But to those who are disobedient, the stone, of, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation." a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So he contrasts now those who stumble and those who are a chosen race and a holy nation. So, um, he who believes in him will by no means put the same. Instead, what? You are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. See, he's still on the same line of thought. Those who believe in him have honor upon honor. Okay, they are a chosen generation. They are a royal priesthood. And they are a holy nation. They are his own special people. The honors are compounded. The honors are compounded. Verses 9 and 10 return us to the identity matter once again. What we are, the identity matter. And they add a purpose statement that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, you are a chosen nation for this purpose, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's even an Old Testament association to that statement. He's quoting again from Isaiah, but Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant Israel was to be a light to the nations. Through that chosen people of the Mosaic Covenant, they were to display God's glory to the nations. 
They didn't do very well at it, but there's a new Zion that is going to succeed in displaying God's glory to the nations. That's this new Zion. That's the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. And what an honor it is to be part of that purpose. To be chosen, to be part of that segment of humanity, to proclaim and reveal the glory of God. That's your identity, brothers and sisters. Chosen for that purpose. One commentator described verses 9 and 10. Now you are the people of God. (laughs) Obeying the word by putting faith in Christ gives Peter's readers a share in Christ's honor. Well, let's begin with the first honor. You are a chosen race. Let's think about that. The translation race is to be preferred here to generation in verse 9. You are a chosen race. Peter identifies all the believers in Asia Minor. And I'm quoting here. All of the believers in Asia Minor, quote, whether Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, Cappadocian, Bithynian, or whatever, though from many races constitute a new race, of those who have been born again into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is the foundational cure for all the evils of racism in human society. End quote. There's a new humanity. There's a second Adam. There's a new race. Okay? And it's those resurrected in Jesus Christ. A new creation. A new race. A new Adam. And all the racism of the fallen world is obliterated (laughs) in this new Zion, which you and I are to model and reflect. And unfortunately, sometimes the church has failed to do that. But we're not going off on on those subjects. But you see, this is the new race. And it is a conglomeration of every tribe and tongue and nation. This is the New Testament concept of a new Zion and a new race. Let's go on. Peter refers, of course, (laughs) to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20. And let's read read through this, beginning in verse 9. I'll just quote it here for you. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, 
they shall declare my praise. And that's exactly what Peter says. Peter picks up that purpose for the new race. He picks that straight up out of Isaiah chapter 43. God pours out the water. What do you think the water is? Amen. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit promise of the new covenant. And he pours out the water. And these people come to life. They are created. And these people I have created for my praise. Right. Wow. Do you realize who you are? Do you realize what God is doing with you, brothers and sisters? This is it. We are chosen and made members of this new human race that we may proclaim the praises of Him, Peter says, who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Peter adds those words. And we'll work further on those. Lord willing, next week, and we're still on this concept of the chosen race. In verses 9 through 10, Peter, without reserve, applies terms to these New Testament believing Gentiles that were used previously only to describe God's chosen nation of ancient Israel. Peter picks up all of those terms applied to Mosaic Covenant ethnic Jews Israel and he brings them all over into the New Covenant and applies them to believing Gentiles. Whatever promises were made to Covenant Israel, those promises in the New Covenant belong to believing Gentiles. Okay? Because we are grafted in, and in Christ, all of those promises to Israel belong to believing Gentiles without distinction. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. We are the chosen race, believing Jew and Gentile together. God is, God is keeping every promise He made to Israel. Every one of them He's keeping us Gentiles are just grafted in and share in the same covenants of promises. Ben read it for us in Ephesians chapter 2. We are joint heirs with the saints. We are joint heirs with covenant Israel. We are grafted in. Okay? And so Peter picks up all of that terminology out of the Mosaic covenant and he applies it to believing Jew and Gentile in the new covenant. That's what he's doing here. I just had to stop and, and point that out so you can see that. So you can read your Old Testament and those promises are for you in Jesus Christ. I'll give you some examples. As far as a chosen people, here are just three examples. You are a chosen race. Here are just three examples of what that means. Deuteronomy 10.15 The Lord delighted only in your father's to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples, you above all peoples as it is this day. That's Deuteronomy. Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's not talking about the United States of America, okay? 
I love our nation. I'm not slamming the wonderful, wonderful common grace and special grace and everything. Okay, no, 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 no. This is the new nation, the new race. Blessed, and, and historically it was ethnic Israel, wasn't it? Absolutely. Historically, Israel as an ethnic nation was separated out from all the other... They what? Chosen. Okay? God chose them above all the other nation. And they gloried in that. The believing Jews gloried in the fact that God elected them and chose them. They gloried in that fact. And here it is in Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whom God is the Lord, the people He has chosen as His own inheritance. They gloried in that. And Peter is now saying, you are the chosen race now. See that? Ethnic Israel under the covenant of types and shadows, under the Mosaic covenant, was the chosen race. Not any longer. In Christ, Peter is saying, you are the chosen race. That's what he's saying. And any unbelieving Jew can join back in to the new chosen race by receiving Jesus as the Messiah. So, Isaiah 44 verse 1, Yet hear me now, O Jacob my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So the chosen race now are all those who are united to Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, throughout the world. It has nothing to do with geographical boundaries. Ditto regarding Christ's kingdom. Okay, next. It is God's gracious initiative that brought both races or nations into existence. Had God not initiated by choosing and calling Abraham out of all of his idolatry, had God not initiated and called Abraham out of all his idolatry and separating Abraham out, separating him and his descendants from all other nations, Israel as an ethnic race and as a nation would never have existed. God brought it into existence by choosing Abraham. So now the new race, consisting of believers in Christ, has its origin in God's gracious choice. To use Paul's words. <laughs> I grabbed that phrase, of course, out of, out of Romans 10. His gracious choice or an election according to grace. And his calling them out of the world for himself. So Peter also says in verse 10, you are a holy nation. You are a chosen race. You are a holy nation. What does that mean? Holy means separated and set aside by God and for God to dwell with them. That's the new Zion. God to dwell with them. You are a holy nation. Now how does a group of people from every tribe and tongue and ethnic nation, how do they become a holy nation? Not by becoming holy, (laughs) 
but God setting them apart for Himself and then making them holy. All right? So when God told Israel, you're a holy nation, what did He mean? I've separated you out by yourself. I've separated you out. I've set you apart. And what? Now I'm going to make you actually holy. So you are a holy nation, one separated out by God for His special purposes. So Peter has more Old Testament types in his list, but we'll we'll stop just with those two at this moment. So um, what a blessed thing, chosen race to become the dwelling place of God, the new Zion. This, of course, is a gracious choice to use the language of Romans 10.5. That is, there is nothing in us or because of us which is the reason why God chose us. Just as with Abraham, there is nothing intrinsically in Abraham as to why God chose him. It was his free, gracious choice. Deuteronomy 7 helps us understand the Old Testament attitude, which surely is the attitude we should have regarding this greater realization of the concept of a chosen race. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. How did they become a holy people? By God choosing them and separating them and setting them apart. That's, that's what that text means. You're a holy people. You're a set-apart people. Why? Because Yahweh chose you and set you apart. That's why you're a holy people. So, I have two applications. First, sadly, the doctrine of election, God's choice of His people, has too often become something for Christians to have theological conflicts over. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe the teaching is to be defended, and it's quite important. Which is why we run across it over and over again in the pages of our Bible. But too often, Christians don't move beyond the theological conflicts, and that's sad. However, being chosen by God should be a significant plank in our personal Christian identity. Right? That's its purpose here. What is Peter doing in these verses? He's trying to show us our identity. Who and what we are. And I have to say, and I'm critical to the people inside the camp. I don't think I've ever read a topical exposition of the doctrine of unconditional election that doesn't drive right home this identity issue and the purpose for that doctrine. That's not healthy. 
Peter brings this up not because he wants to win a theological fight with someone. He brings it up because he wants these early suffering Christians to know their position in Christ and how big and broad that is. That God has chosen you. It's revolutionary. Just as it was with the people of Israel. Yes, I will engage in a theological conflict to defend the doctrine because it is a massively practical doctrine for the life and the holiness of a believer. It is. It absolutely is. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 1. He wants those Ephesians to understand all the blessings they have in Christ. And where does he start? He starts with this doctrine. Okay. So, my challenge to... Uh, let's see. However... Uh, all right. My challenge to those who understand this doctrine as I've presented it, my challenge is... Have we been humbled by it? Have we been humbled by it? As the hymn says, chosen not for good in me. Have you felt the weight of that? Have you been humbled by it? What can a believer do but be humbled and bless God? I'm a member of God's chosen race. Has the truth become a foundation of my peace, my security, my ability to suffer, my joy, my gratitude towards God in my life? Has the truth had that effect on you, on me? It should. Some weeks ago when we were considering chapter 2 verse 4 that Jesus is chosen by God and precious, one of you came up to me and said with a humble smile on her face, she came up to me, I won't tell you who it is, she came up to me with a humble smile on her face and she said, I'm chosen too. And I said to her, Indeed you are. That just, cap that just captured it right there. And I said, we're going to get to it down here. Not only is Christ chosen, we are. Peter's going to get there. And he gets there in verse 9. I hope that is the effect. If not, work at it. Think about it. Being chosen by God part of the chosen race, should be a significant plank in our personal Christian identity, not merely something over which we engage in theological debate. Go ahead and engage in the theological debate and do it graciously because it's very important. But if you can't do it graciously, shut your mouth. All right? And I hope I'm doing it graciously this morning. <laughs> okay? 
And if I'm not, point it out to me. The fact that we are a chosen race has a deep and profound meaning to every believer, just as it did to those ancient Israelite believers, those that had faith. You read that in the Old Testament. It had a deep and a profound meaning to those who wrote the Psalms that God had chosen them. And they weren't embarrassed that the doctrine was in their Old Testament. Now, my challenge to those who uh, my challenge to those who understand this doctrine to mean nothing more than God chose us because He knew that we would first choose Him. My challenge to those is this. Doesn't such an understanding lessen the significance of God's love? If all election means is that God's choice is nothing more than His response to my initiative to choose Him, if that's all that it means, it means so much more than that. And to misdefine it that way is taking away one of the most precious truths for the people of God. I just encourage you to reconsider. No, the wonderful truth is that my beloved pursued me. Could you imagine a guy who's looking at the gal and she asks him, you know, why, why are you choosing me? And he goes, well, well, I'm pretty sure that uh, you've first chosen me. That isn't going to work, is it, ladies? <laughs> no, 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 no. That isn't going to work. <laughs> Love initiates and pursues and chooses. That's exactly, I believe, how the, teach, how the Scriptures represent this doctrine. So, my challenge to those who perhaps don't understand this or, or perhaps don't agree is, is just, to think, just to think through those things. Uh, <clears throat> and again, there's those four messages uh, that we did on a Wednesday night that could help you kind of doing a topical on, on these kinds of things. So that's just wonderful. Uh, my second application, and this is the one I want to spend a few minutes as we, as we wrap up here. This will just take maybe five minutes, maybe even less. Back into the historical context here again. The idea that Christians were forming a new race at the time of the Roman Empire would surely engender suspicion, resentment, and rejection. K. Jobes described the situation these believers found themselves in, and this is a long quote. The understanding of Christians that they formed a new race among humanity was precisely one of the points for which they were criticized and persecuted by first-century pagan society. Oh, this is so practical. We are beginning to experience what she is describing 
of first century Christians. The understanding of Christians that they formed a new race among humanity was precisely one of the points for which they were criticized and persecuted by first century pagan society. The Roman writer Suetonius refers to Christians as a separate class. Quote, Punishment was inflicted on Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. End quote. This perception, as Colwell observes, led to practices and attitudes, whether justified or not, that alienated Christians from the people of the empire. From the conception of Christians as a different race came the accusation that believers in Christ were haters of mankind. The very goals of Peter's letter that believers form in turn the Christian community and repudiate certain attitudes and practices of their society also gave rise to the charge that Christians were antisocial. <gasps> you bunch of antisocial people. <sighs> We're talking about first and second century. Gave rise to the charge that Christians were antisocial. Christians were perceived to repudiate pleasures, the theater, the races, the gladiatorial combats. They were perceived to break, break home and family ties. He who loves me more than. Okay. They were perceived as those who break family ties. Ruin businesses. Now, I don't, I don't know how that works. Because usually most employees, employers like to hire Christians because they're such good employees. So I don't know how they were accused of ruining businesses in the first century. Ruin businesses. Ab abandon pagan religious ritual, obviously. And avoid civic duties. These, this very contempt of the new race caused much of the popular opposition to Christianity in the first few centuries. But as Colwell observes, quote, it was also the victory that overcame the world, end quote. As Christians lived as members of a new race and paradoxically won over the masses. And that is what happened. Wow. Much of that first century description describes what we are beginning to experience today as we are a new race, the chosen race. Remember who you are, a chosen race, a holy nation. And don't compromise. One of the key things that helps Christians not to compromise is to remember who you are. Okay?
And when you disconnect from who you really are, you expose yourself to many dangers and temptations. Remember who you are. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, your works are marvelous. They're, what, what can we say? They're wonderful. And Lord, if we're sitting here this morning, glorying in the value of your Son, the infinite, beyond conception, value and riches that are in your Son. As Paul, your servant, said, it was given to him to be able to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles. So Lord, we thank you. Most of us sit here this morning and we love singing his praise and your praise and how great and deep Father, your love for us, we can't understand it. Lord, we, we can't really understand it. We see it. Lord, you know better than we what we need. We pray that you'll pour out your Holy Spirit on your people first and that you'll also pour out your Spirit on those who don't see the glory of your Son. And give us the wisdom and the power. You've made us responsible to proclaim Him and to make Him known. Help us do that, Lord. We pray in your Son's awesome name. Amen.